Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, new fan, or I guess I would say player, of Nintendo's epic Zelda series. Paul, I don't know where you've been, but uh, if you're into the games and into some of Nintendo's most prized possessions, in this case, Zelda, one of their best franchises, they just released Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, sold 10 million copies, three days. We're looking at almost $700 million in revenue for Nintendo. It's kind of crazy, man. This thing's like taking over. It's all over TikTok. And I think uh, an exciting time. If you ever played Zelda, I played the 64 version. So this was very new for me. So Tears of the Kingdom, you said it's uh, one of the highest rated games of all time. One of the most anticipated games, right, of all time. Follow-up to uh, Breath of the Wild from 2017. It's limited to Switch, right? I yes. think the prior Breath of the Wild sold 30 million units. So this is the thing about the Switch. It's been around for a really long time. And when Breath of the Wild came out, it blew people away. 30 million copies over six years. I think this has the potential to be even bigger because TikTok is really big now. And so on TikTok, you're just seeing clips of people posting. They're not even playing the freaking game in terms of the actual quest you have to do. There's this whole thing in, in Tears of the Kingdom where you can build like rockets and uh, machines and it's like it has this whole engineering piece to it. I can barely make a bridge, let alone put a stick and a rock together. These kids are making three tier spaceships. Is that using the like the special hand? Yeah, it's like using the special like fuse. Like they, there's like a bunch of different things, but then you can use like these devices. You have to find them and they can power it's actually insane. And so TikTok has just gone nuts with like what people are making. And like there's a joke, there's like a space program people are making. It's, I can't even tell you um, how bad I am at this. It's game. crazy how talented some people are, right? It, it, it is really incredible. And I think because of that, because so many people are seeing it more now, maybe it has the potential to do well. More people have us. I just bought a Switch, right? It's been out for almost seven years. I bought one just to play this game and play some like other games, learning a bit more about gaming recently. And I think the other interesting thing is that because of the success of Mario's movie, which has done over a billion dollars in the box office made by Illumination and Nintendo together. No it crossed a billion? I think wow. it crossed a billion. I think I, I saw something that Chris Pratt has now, between his two movies released in the last few months, has made over $2 billion uh, in box office revenue between Guardians and Mario. And by the way, I just went and saw it with my cousin last week. My cousins and I went and saw it, and it was, it was a fun movie. But Illumination basically brought Nintendo to the big screen and did it really well that maybe there's a chance that this potentially really, like what maybe will happen with Zelda. One and a quarter billion for Super Mario Brothers. You're yeah, right. and it was like, it's a good movie. I was laughing. It's beautifully made in terms of the animation. And so will we see Zelda come to the big screen given if in 
three days, it's made almost $700 million. Let's assume that it makes well over a billion dollars. Um, I think really, really strong IP there. And I think um, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. So I think if you have a huge fan base like that and Illumination's coming off the epic success of Super Mario Brothers, why not You know, bring them back and make a Zelda film? Yeah, the only thing I was reading was that I was reading some fan comments and Zelda is Princess Zelda, usually in the storyline of, yeah. of the Zelda the Zelda games. Link is the hero that you play that goes and saves Zelda. Link doesn't speak. Uh, Link doesn't say words. And so the comments were like, this can't happen. Link doesn't have a voice. They're going to ruin everything. But look, Mario in the movies also didn't, you know, he didn't have an Italian accent. And they put that into the plot of why you know, it's a me, a Mario, like why that actually worked. Link can't speak, but can he put butts in seats? I don't 100%, know. 100%. I mean, that's a, tricky, that's a tricky problem to work around. I would love to see a Zelda. I mean, what's dialogue anyway without a WGA? <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, they can make it an animation and, you know, everyone else could speak. He doesn't have to speak. We play the game. The guy doesn't speak in the game. Suddenly I know what he's doing all the time. How do I know? I don't. They just do a right. good job at it. I guess it just goes to show that they didn't really plan on there being a film universe around Link back in the day. Yeah, you know, there hasn't been anything. And I think we've seen the same thing with Mario. Honestly, after like the 90s Super Mario Brothers thing, that was gone for a while. And, you know, Nintendo, like when it comes to revenue, man, they haven't released a new game console. They only release a, a popular hit game every once in a while. So that IP they're sitting on, like I would assume they have to do something and box office is a great way. Uh, if, if Mario proves is potentially one of the biggest um, new movie franchises, what could they do with some of their other IP? Yeah, I mean, clearly it, if it's if you have a built-in fan base, but you also have to execute it well, which Illumination yes. did. But having a built-in fan base is, is a great starting point and that's what studios are looking for. So I think it's a, it, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Let's transition real quick to Tiger Woods. Uh, this is a story that we actually discussed in detail in episode 211. So if you haven't listened to that, maybe you should run it back. Or if you have, maybe it's worth listening again. That was a funny episode. Yeah. So, you know, that's like the messy breakup, Tiger Woods and his ex, Erica Herman. Quick recap. So they were living together in this, I think, $57 million mansion in Jupiter, Florida. And Tiger wanted to and the relationship, but apparently she was not willing to move out. One of his staff suggested that she should go on a short vacation, clear her head. She got to the airport and they said, there's no vacation. And by the way, like you can't go back to the house. <laughs> We're changing yeah, the locks geez, or whatever man. it was. And Switch she decided to sue. And Tiger responded like, hey, you know, back in 2017, we signed an NDA. It requires all disputes to be arbitrated. So you can't sue me you can pursue your claims, but they have to be through confidential binding arbitration. Her lawyers tried to argue that the NDA was unenforceable because there's this new federal statute that says arbitration clauses are not enforceable in the sexual harassment context. However, her claims never included sexual harassment right. until like the last minute, and she never pled any facts to suggest that there was sexual harassment. And her lawyer kind of said, well, that's because there's this NDA and we don't know what we're allowed to say. Well, the judge basically said, you haven't made sufficient showing that there was sexual harassment. And what this seems like is just a dispute about the relationship. And that in and of itself isn't reason enough to invalidate your NDA and the arbitration clause. So 
to the extent she has a claim, it's got to be decided under arbitration. And then once the arbitration ruling is determined, she can go to the court to enforce right. it if she wins. But I think, as we said at the time, it seemed like Tiger had a pretty strong case, at least to say that the NDA was valid, and the judge agreed. And, and that's what they wanted, right? He want, he basically wanted things to happen privately behind closed doors versus publicly. Yeah, I'm sure he probably wanted this thing to go away. Yeah, but yeah, the yeah. very last thing he wanted was like a big public lawsuit and trial. Right. You know, not to sound insensitive to Erica, but it did seem a little bit opportunistic. And then they started bringing up other things like employer, right, employee right, liability. Right. And, and it really just seems like a relationship that ended bitterly not necessarily something more, but she may try to add to her pleadings. But there were she was given an opportunity to amend her complaint to include details about alleged sexual harassment, and she she never did. Yeah, and lo- the lawyers are saying that she suffered more than thirty million dollars in damages. Well, part of that was they used the value, the rental value of the house. <laughs> she claimed that they she had an agreement to live there for eleven years, and he kicked her out after five or six. So she wanted like right. basically the market rental for six years of living in that house. That's how she got to the 30 million. But we'll see what an arbitrator says. Probably probably won't be that high. I'm going to start using that math and like any comp that I'm I'm making for myself. You know, what what the val- what is your value? Well, OK, well, maybe not for better call Paul co-host. <laughs> but, um. Um, <laughs> all right. So another update can film festival just happened. It's still happening. It's sorry. It's still happening. It's still happening, Um, which is always great because it kind of gives you a preview into some of the the hyped movies, potentially what's going to be buzzy at the Oscars. And I, I think the interesting thing here, the one that obviously made the most impact, Martin Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon, the very, very anticipated. I know I can't wait to watch this movie. Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone. DiCaprio and De Niro haven't been together since they did This Boy's Life, which I want to say was like early, early in his career. Very anticipated Scorsese movie takes place in Oklahoma. This movie is going to be three hours and 26 minutes long, and they got a nine minute standing ovation for it. Apparently it was fantastic. From what I understand, this is going to be released via Apple Studios. Oh, wow. Tim Cook was in the audience. And uh, from from what I read, they spent $200 million on this movie. You know, we've talked about this before, like Apple really kind of pushing the pedal on their studio chops, man, like hit shows, now hit movies. They've already have an Oscar. I mean, who knows what happened? This is a Scorsese movie with Leo and De Niro. Who knows what happens from that? There are some other movies. Johnny Depp's got a movie out with French director Maywen. I don't know how to pronounce it. My, my, Mehwen. Jean Dubarry. Jean Dubarry. Jean um, Dubarry. Uh, so that's a Johnny Depp movie. You know, Johnny Depp hasn't been. Johnny some- Depp is still a star in France. Did you see yeah, that? Exactly. <laughs> He's like adored. Um, he His star has not fallen or dimmed at all in France. And I, I liked his quote. He's like, you know, I don't really need Hollywood. I still have. I'm still a star in a lot of other places. Dude, look, let's see. Let's see if Johnny Depp comes back to Hollywood or if we that's see actually a star-studded cast with Helen Mirren, Elle Fanning, yeah, and Thurman. I, I mean, it should be interesting. Like- and then... Uh, in terms of some of the other movies, you have Sean Penn and Ty Sheridan in Black Flies, where they play paramedics. Ty Sheridan, if you guys remember, he was in Ready Player One. I haven't really seen him in anything since then. but And then Sean Penn, obviously Sean Penn. And then another movie that made an impact. It wasn't, I don't think it was entered into the festival itself in terms of awards or anything, but it premiered um, Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridges, and um, of course, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny Heard that also got a standing applause. 
Antonio Banderas is in that movie. Indiana Jones, that's the fifth one, right? That's the fifth one? Yes, it is the fifth one. The one before that was obviously Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, which Shia LaBeouf was in, who was playing Harrison's son. It started off pretty decent, and then it just got... I don't know what that movie became, but I'm excited about Dial of Destiny. Uh, who doesn't love an adventure movie? This is the first non-Spielberg-directed one, right? This is, is that, Nick Mangold. Is that the case? Actually, I really like... He did the Wolverine, which I really like. Yeah, that was a good movie. Um, and look, I, I like uh, I like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who obviously had Fleabag writer and starred in it. She was also a writer on the the last installment of Daniel Craig's James Bond movies. We'll see how that turns out. And May, December, Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Strange Way of Life with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal. So let's see if Pedro can become a movie star beyond just his incredible TV run right now. So for me, it's Killer of the Flower Moon. I think that's the one I would like to see. And there's uh, Wes Anderson as Asteroid City. Yes, too. Asteroid City. So, so we got some good movies in there, man. I'm, I'm excited to check them out when they come out. Can is a big one. It's in the it's in the big five. You know, up there with Tiff and Sundance yeah. and Berlin yeah. and Venice. So maybe I'm not. I shouldn't be surprised to see like Disney with Pixar and. Indiana Jones, like normally, do they bring their tent poles to Cannes? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but, that's um, what I thought was interesting that they were there, but uh, maybe it's because just to get opportunity to get the the film out or something. I don't know. I thought film festivals were for like the lower budget, mid tier kind of like independently financed to go sell a movie. I mean, I guess it's two hundred million dollar <laughs> Apple film, or it's sort of antithetical to the film festivals that I was thinking, but I could be It wrong. could be like the need for wanting that stamp of approval. You know, like I think it's also like more artsy type movies. Maybe you're not your big box office films, but artsy type movies that might get attention to. I think maybe in this case, Tim Cook is like, we would love to get a little, you know, the little bottom of the thing where it says uh, Cannes Film Festival winner or whatever, whatever. The Leaf. Um, the Leaf. So who knows, man? Everything's changing. The whole world's changing and everything in entertainment's changing. Um, maybe maybe Can is where the next Transformers movie premieres in a few years. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, let's take a quick break and dive back in with the Supreme Court case that just came down. Okay, Mesh. So speaking of everything changing, although I don't know how much this will change things, way back when, season one, episode 37, we talked about a case that hit the Supreme Court involving Andy Warhol's Prince Silkscreen. Basically, not to recap, but because you can go to episode 37 to get all the facts, but Lynn Goldsmith is a photographer. She was hired by Vanity Fair in the 80s to take photos of Prince for a magazine cover. She licensed the photo to Vanity Fair for 400 bucks, one-time use. And just one thing to know here legally, photographers absent some other contract, typically own the copyright in the in the photographs they take. It's not the subject and it's right. not the person paying for it unless you have a contract that says otherwise. In this case, so she owned the photograph. She licensed it to Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair then let Andy Warhol create a painting based on it. And so what he did is he created a silkscreen. He resized it. He focused more on Prince's head and he changed the color. So he colorized. It was a black and right. white photo and he added color to it. And his estate licensed that to Vanity Fair in 2016. And at that time, Lynn Goldsmith sued Andy Warhol's estate saying, hey, you needed a license to because basically what you did is you made a derivative work of my picture and now you're licensing it. 
without my permission. And that's not how copyright law right. works. So this case worked its way through the district court where Warhol won, then the Second Circuit appealed, then it's at the Supreme Court who just ruled in favor of Lynn Goldsmith. And what it comes down to is fair use right. and what is a fair use. And just for people that aren't familiar, so copyright law in the US gives the creator of, of original work of authorship that's fixed in tangible medium basically the exclusive right to distribute it, to license it, to monetize it, to reproduce it, and to make derivative works. Certain uses of artwork are considered fair without a license, without permission. So for example, it's a doctrine of fair use which says that you can use a copyrighted work for certain limited purposes without it being infringement, even if you didn't get permission from the author or from the owner. And typically, it means that you have to do something that's educational or commentary or news, something that is transformative of the work, that doesn't use a ton of it, and that isn't really competing with the work. And so we tell our clients when they ask us, hey, is this a fair use? I'm like, you know, proceed with caution because whether or not something's a fair use is actually a really fact-intensive analysis. And it's not the sort of thing where we can tell you XYZ is definitely a fair use or something is definitely not a fair use. It's all factors that are going to be weighed by a court. And whenever you're in one of those like courts weighing multiple factors that pull in different directions, it's risky. And so in this case, Andy Warhol's estate was licensing the silkscreen image for money. And Lynn was also licensing her photograph for money. And that's with the Supreme Court. The fact that both images or the, the silkscreen and the original photograph were both competing to be licensed to magazines. Right. That's why the Supreme Court said, hey, in this case, it's not a transformative work. It's really basically, it's doing the same exact thing that the original photograph is. It's a direct competitor. Oh, and by the way, he didn't really change it that much. All he did was add color and resize it a little bit. And so it's basically a derivative work which Lynn has the right to control. And the Supreme Court was pretty, it was 7-2, a 7-2 decision in favor of Lynn Goldsmith. But Justice Roberts and Elena Kagan dissented and they were like, well, this is an overreach and it's going to really chill the artistic process for a lot of people. And they're going to be a lot more hesitant to expand upon or leverage other people's works in their own. And that's like antithetical to their view of art and art like every every artist is inspired by someone else. Right. That's their yeah. view. And so they think that Andy Warhol was just inspired by this picture and he didn't really copy it. And so, I mean, this is just generally interesting given previous week stuff around, you know, Ed Sheeran and, and, and his songwriting and being influenced by other people. But I mean, this is going to be an ongoing trend, especially where like we're going with technology and stuff in terms of using other people's work, like how copyrights are going to work, like what, how people are going to build on each other's stuff. Like, I wonder if something like this makes them more nervous to potentially try to make like derivative work, or they're just a bit more like hesitant to do things. I, I mean, maybe that ends up being more like original work that's created, but like in this case, like what is the, like, is there a financial you know, reaction here? Like if, if, if Goldsmith wins this, then does she sue? Like, what happens next? Lynn did sue in 2016 because she's like, hey, wait a minute. All you did was add some color to this and, and resize it, crop it a little bit. You're basically licensing my work or a work that's a derivative right, work of right. my work and you need my permission. So she sued in 2016. The district court actually took Warhol's side and said, hey, no, 
this is basically altered. It's got a different meaning. It's got a different message. It's basically a different work. Like when you see it with the color and the resizing, it's different work. That's what the district court said. The appeals court sided with Lynn, and then the Supreme Court also took Lynn's side. So now what happens is the Supreme Court says, we're sending this back to the district court. We've decided that it is an infringement. Now you guys have to decide what the damages should be. How much should she have gotten paid? Right. So it's scary in the sense that the cat is out of the bag. The work's already been licensed. And so Lynn has a lot more leverage to demand damages or to say what the price would be. But I'm sympathetic to Lynn. I don't I, I agree. Yeah. think the Supreme Court was wrong in this because here's the thing. I mean, Andy Warhol's estate, they have resources and they were trying to make money off the photo to begin yeah, with. So yeah, it's yeah. like, if they think they can license it out, why do they not think that they need permission to license I, I sorry i i kind of um now now thinking about it i'm with you on not that it's in this case it's like it shouldn't scare fr- people from wanting to be inspired by others it's you if you're going to build on someone other's work you should either give them credit get their permission get the license get whatever you need to do versus in this case what was happening was that um it was like a workaround right like oh it's not the same thing or whatever they thought it was theirs yeah, right yeah. they're just like oh well you know he it's called appropriation art right and so some artists it's like this school of art where people just take something that's popular and tweak it a little bit and act like it's a different work and that's like you know been going on for decades and Andy Warhol was one of the leaders of that. So he had the Campbell soup yes, thing and yes. the Brillo pads or whatever. But colorizing something, in my view, you could have an algorithm do that, right? And does that necessarily mean it's it's a new work? I don't I don't think so. Yeah. And they were licensing it. It's not like it was like they were putting it in school textbooks or teaching a class on photography. It wasn't education. It was a commercial use and it was a direct competitor with the photo. So I don't think the Supreme Court was like way off base in the ruling. And they were very deliberate to make it super narrow. And they're like, hey, we're not just saying that anytime you alter a work in a certain way, it won't be a fair use. What we're saying is on these facts, because they were both potentially licensed to magazines, they were clearly serving similar purposes. And that, for that reason, we can't say that this is transformative. Like, for example, if you and I, and this is not an opinion, but if you and I play very short clip of... Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud and a very short clip of Let's Get It On for purposes of comparing and contrasting to educate someone on how copyright infringement is decided, right? That's an educational purpose. It's less likely to be considered infringement. It's more likely to be considered fair use because what we're not really selling Better Call Paul as a musical podcast. We're not selling the songs or, or monetizing the music. What we're doing is we're educating people. And by the way, Better Call Paul is free. However, if all we were doing is changing a note or two and then selling that to a video game company, that would seem more like infringement. And so if you're taking the majority, the Supreme Court saying, well, okay, well, he didn't really change it that much. He added color, he cropped it a little bit, and then boom, you know, he's trying to build it into this empire and not giving any credit to the original artist and he didn't get her permission. So to that degree, I'm sympathetic. And we always tell our clients like, hey, when in doubt, Get the permission right. because worst case scenario, let's say it was a fair use. Okay, you spent a little bit of time and effort and you got the permission. But if it's not a fair use, oh, by the way, you have this work. And let's say it becomes a hit. Now someone could potentially ask for a ton of damages from you and you can't unrelease the work. You can't undo it. You're kind of like 
you know, over a barrel at that God, point. That sounds like a nightmare scenario. And if Lynn Goldsmith wanted, you know, a billion dollars for Andy Warhol to use that photo, then he probably would have used a different photo. And maybe that would have taken on a life of its own. So I'm sympathetic to Lynn Goldsmith's position. I think the Supreme Court made a rational decision, but I could also see how it is a little bit of an expansion. But fair use is just a fuzzy, flexible concept. And what's transformative, there's no specific bright line test. There's a lot of factors. But one of the things that we've always known is that if things are competitive, like both commercial works that could be substituted for another, one could be substituted for the copyrighted work, then it's unlikely to be transformative. All right, Paul. Well, great breakdown as always. Let's take a quick break and we'll get back and talk about what's going on at Peacock. Okay, Mesh, we often talk a lot about streaming on the show. We haven't really talked that much about Peacock. No. It's growing, but it's not the biggest. It's 22 million paid subscribers as of Q1 2023. And it's not like anywhere near the level of Disney Plus or Netflix or even Paramount Plus. But it's got some really compelling content. Yeah. And it's owned by Comcast. So it has all the NBCU synergies too. And because of that, I think Peacock could be a force for a while. And there's a couple of things that it's doing with respect to ad tech and integrating different sorts of ads that I think are really interesting. Peacock, I've been playing a bit more with now. And actually, my friend my friend Jenny was on the ads team um, at Peacock. And it is interesting to see them come into the game, have these different tiers. One of them that they're talking about is like, what I think it's called Shoppable TV where essentially it's like building the brand within the program. So we're watching Top Chef and we could potentially be buying stuff in the kitchen, I guess is how how they're trying. Like branding within. I mean, it's smart, right? It's smart because who doesn't watch TV with like their phone nearby? And looks up something. When they're also in front of a computer. And plus cooking shows, especially because when you're watching someone that's like, really good at cooking and they make it look so effortless. You're like, oh man, if I only had that skillet, you know, <laughs> I would be making that stuff too. Let me just order that right now. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the skillet guys. They're growing. Part of it is just to be clear, like Peacock's still not profitable. Yeah. Um, Q1, they lost like 700 million, yeah. which is a $300 million improvement over Q4 22, but they're still like- 978 million. Yeah, they're still on pace to like, lose like, I don't know, like $3 billion this year. Jeez, man. And so their revenue is six or 700 million and a quarter, but their expenses are like billion and a half. And so that's not great. But if they quadruple in size, then maybe they'll become profitable because their content spend is not going to change dramatically. Yeah. You're a soccer fan, right? So they have a lot of sports. Well, that's where we watch all our Premier League games uh, as Arsenal fans. A lot of my family members and friends, like we watch it on for a lot of times on NBC Sports or Peacock, and, and that's where they are. But interesting what you're saying is that to, they have to increase the number of subscribers. Yes, they added 2 million subscribers this last quarter, which is great, but the previous quarter they added 5 million. So, I mean, depend, I mean, it, 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 these things come in waves. Like, well, the previous quarter they had the World Cup. They had Spanish it, Exactly. Language. It comes in waves. The, that's the subject of the main topic here, which is, they just did a really slick deal with the NFL. Yeah, really interesting. And we talk about the NFL a lot in that the NFL is, you know, the premier sports 
property in the U.S. and probably up there with top flight soccer as far as the global sports powerhouses. And they make 10 to 11, maybe 12 or 13 billion dollars a season from television and streaming rights deals with the broadcast networks and with Amazon. And we just talked about how NFL Sunday Ticket is moving from DirecTV, where it was since the mid-90s, to YouTube TV. So the NFL is embracing streaming in a big way. Thursday Night Football is on Amazon. So Amazon has Thursday Night Football essentially exclusively for the next 10 years. And NBC is a broadcast partner for NFL. And because NBC and Peacock are both owned by Comcast, they're starting to leverage them to put football on Peacock. And so... Now, Peacock is getting week 16 game, NFL game, and they're getting the first exclusive playoff game. So Peacock is a streaming product, and it's the first streaming product that's going to have an exclusive NFL playoff As game. As in it won't, it won't be on TV or cable. Like, you have to watch it on Peacock streaming. So every playoff game is going to be between two teams. So in the home markets of those teams, so let's say it was like, it's wild card weekend. So let's say it was like the Cowboys and the Giants or something. In Dallas and New York, you could watch it on broadcast, but throughout the rest of the country, you could only watch it on Peacock. And that's a first. Well, here's the crazy thing. From what I understand, it's a one-year deal. And for that one game, it's estimated to be valued at $110 million. Is that what you've come to uh, understand as well? So neither Comcast or NFL disclosed the terms of the deal, but that is what's being reported. Oof. And so... It's really smart because typically the playoff games are included in the annual rights deal. So if you're Fox or NBC or CBS or ABC, you typically get a certain amount of playoff games and they alternate the Super Bowls when you do your, your rights deals. But in this most round of deals, the NFL kept one playoff game per year to auction. Dude. So every single year, they're going to auction one game and the intent is it for, for it to be on a streaming service. So this year's game is going to be on Peacock. And the other layer to this whole thing is that Comcast, which owns Peacock and NBC, is also the largest cable operator in America. So they have 15 million subscribers. And there was a day a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, where the NFL Network, which is like the NFL's linear channel, which is on... 24-7, year-round. Actually, its deal with Comcast expired. And so the deal went dark because right now we're between the draft and the season doesn't start until really like end of August, first week of September. And so Comcast probably could have dragged its feet on renewing NFL Network. But the CEO of Comcast, Brian Roberts, Roger Goodell, and they decided to resolve the issue in like a day. And right after that was when this Peacock thing got announced. So it's really interesting that the Comcast has a ton of leverage, right? Because it is the biggest cable operator. And they also have Peacock and they have NBC. Yeah. So because Amazon wanted that game too. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because like now essentially we're we're seeing the value of what one would pay per game as more and more money goes into content maybe because uh, it goes into streaming especially sports specifically as everyone starts competing with each other more and more and you know we potentially might only see sports on streaming i mean right now that's the case for a lot of sports that we watch it's going to be interesting to see like how the value and the market cap of these not only just like the rights deals but like now looking at it on a game by game basis and tournaments etc and like 
what that's going to do. One, I, I think just from like the standpoint of being able to access stuff really easily on a streaming network for me is preferable. Like that's what I would pref- like. I would like to do that versus like having to find it on cable and looking through it. So I'm just generally interested to see how this goes. I think it's going to get more and more expensive. If you're the NFL or you're another sports association, like you're probably in a really good place. This is a big part of what I do. And this transition from the way cable evolved from like the mid nineties to now has had a lot to do with sports and the popularity of sports. And a lot of what people pay for when they sign up for cable is sports. And if enough people cut the cord, then these leagues and sports rights owners are very sophisticated and they're keeping their eye on that. And at a certain point, it's gonna make more sense to reach a bigger audience through streaming. I don't know when that point is, but when that day arrives, if it arrives, it's gonna be very interesting because certain leagues like the NFL have centralized control over all telecast rights. Like the NFL negotiates all the broadcast, all the streaming deals. Other leagues like NBA, NHL, baseball, they let the teams control telecast rights in their local markets. And so like having a compelling streaming product, whether that's national or, or regional, there can be a really big difference. So for example, we're talking about Peacock's paying reportedly 110 million for this NFL game. At 22 million subs, that's $5 per sub, right? That's what they're paying for the yeah. game. If they had 100 million subs, their cost would only be a dollar per yeah. sub, right? So their cost would really go down if they grew. And so if something like, if, if they had a really compelling NFL game and a bunch of people that don't have Peacock were like, I need to watch this game. The only way I can do this is to sign up for Peacock. They sign up for a month and they're like, oh, you know what? There's all this other stuff that I like too. And it's not that much money and they keep it, then that's a huge win for Peacock, right? And that's the same thing YouTube TV is thinking when they get Sunday tickets. So if they're willing to be the highest bidder in this auction for sports rights in order to grow their platforms, they think they can bring down the cost per unit as long as they're growing. That's really, I don't have an answer to that, but that's what we'll see you know, over time. Yeah. I mean, look, it it, it might be that we're covering more sports stuff here because it's becoming more and more interesting. We're talking like there's so much money on the table and there's so much writing for all these platforms and there's so many people that watch this stuff. So I'm excited to continue learning more about it and diving into it and seeing how things turn out. And, um, yeah, Jessica did a Peacock show, by the way. I got to throw that. Oh, nice. (laughs) Baking it. Yeah. So that's why we've had Peacock for a while oh, cool. because we, we signed up to watch our show and then we've just kept it. Nice, nice. I, I genuinely like, I like the interface of Peacock. So uh, I'll say that I maybe just need to find more shows to watch on it. But I think the fact that sports is on it makes it like, oh, it's nice to open this up and you get, it's not just like I can watch comedies or SNL. I can also watch um, the Premier League. You need like a PhD to figure out all this. It is. Stuff. I mean, I'm still like kind of like, We've covered so much, and I wish that um, uh, I'd almost like to like write all these things out and how they all connect, and it'd be like one really big board of uh, just like yeah, like current seasons of Yellowstone <laughs> yeah, are on yeah. Paramount Plus. Back seasons are on Peacock. Oh my god, unless you want to bubble, so confusing. Yeah, no, like but um, confusing. yeah, it's almost like you need a guide not only to like what sports is playing where on what. But it's what shows, like it's really what all content is playing. Like someone needs to make a um, one of those dummies guide to how to find your favorite show or sports team. Or, or the pendulum swings back to just one, just someone's like, this is too confusing. Can I just pay <laughs> yeah. like 200 bucks a month to get it all? 
and then I don't have to worry about like <laughs> making sure I have the right yeah. thing. And then, and then, and then realizes, we're still hey, stuck. If we get enough people to pay that. And then we're still <laughs> stuck at Spectrum in New York, which I've been trying to get out for the last like two years. And now I'm like, well, this actually makes more sense just to stay with them than to get out. Yeah, exactly. They know. Yeah, they, they know. know they, they, they're, they know what's happening. But uh, <laughs> good, good stuff, man. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Share it with your friends and family. Follow us on Instagram, Better Call Paul, the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lacani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Paul, great show. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>